Genesis chapter 39. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph and he prospered and he lived in the house of, the Egypt, of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favour in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well built and handsome, and after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home, until her master, his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was, in, was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favour in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. This is the word of the Lord.
morning, everyone. My name is Prash. I'm the senior minister. A very warm welcome to you if you're new or visiting or if you're back after the holidays. It's great to have you with us today at church. We are in um, a series looking at the uh, Old Testament book of Genesis. And um, we're going to take a break, actually, after this week for a, for a month or so. Um, but we've been spending eight weeks thinking about these key um, members of, of, I guess, the starting members of God's family in the story of the Bible, from Abraham through to Jacob, and now we've turned to Joseph. And we, think, we titled the series Mercy for Messy Family, because in many ways, the reoccurring story is of each of these characters is the messiness of them. These are people who... Uh, th- their lives are very messy, and they are messy people uh, who, who do things that are terrible. Um, we, we might water them down because we, we have great kind of kids' stories about them, but they're liars, they're thieves, they're murderers, uh, and this is the, sto- the storyline for a large part. Now, one of the challenges when you read the Bible is avoiding um, simplifying the message of the Bible down to one line, and the challenge of a, a sermon title series, Mercy for Messy Families, is that we've done exactly that. We've, we've kind of simplified the message of this part of Genesis. We may even be entitled to ask the question, does it really matter what God's people do? Does it really matter if God's mercy is so broad and wide, does he really seem to care about the messiness of all these individuals? Does he care that Jacob is a liar, Laban is a liar, um, that, that Esau is, um, is fickle? Does he, does he care about the, the horrific crimes that um, the sons of Jacob uh, carry out in the intervening chapters between the story of Jacob and the story of Joseph? Does he really care about that? Does that really matter? Because all of these people who seem to receive his mercy are, um, are messy in and of themselves. And that question is answered when we come to Joseph. Because Joseph, unlike all these other characters, is a man of great integrity. He's a man of great integrity. I mean, maybe last week you were slightly put off with the idea of Joseph telling on his brothers, bringing an unfavourable report, but they are, as the, as the passages before it say, very unfavourable people. He's just reporting the nature of who they are. But when we come to this story and these events, what emerges is that unlike the rest of his family, Joseph is a man of great integrity, great integrity. And so, you know, he's in Potiphar's house. Potiphar is like the, he's he's like the third or fourth most important person in Egypt. He's a very powerful man. And yet he recognises in Joseph this integrity, this trustworthiness. And so he's willing to put in charge everything that he owns. There's nothing which Joseph doesn't have control over. Potiphar fully trusts him because he recognises in Joseph uh, this, this integrity to him. And, and of course, this is highlighted most clearly in the events between Joseph and Potiphar's wife. There's a kind of infamous story. Maybe you haven't heard it before. Let me just summarise for you what happens. Joseph is put in charge of the house. We're told that he's very handsome beautiful. The words actually um, reflect his, his, the description of his mother as well. It's like this is one of the things that's been passed down to him. It's a blessing, but it turns out to not be so much of a blessing because Potiphar's wife takes a liking to him and she tries to seduce him. And we're told that 
his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. It's a very clear demand. There's, a, there's probably a power play going on there as well. But immediately he refuses. And this, this behavior of Joseph, this little interaction, is a reflection of who he is. He is a person of integrity. And this is not unusual, actually. You might think, oh, well, Joseph's unusual, but most of God's people are not like that. There are repeated examples of this, because this is the kind of person God wants his people to be like. Uh, as you go through the story of the Bible, you see this in someone like Daniel, who finds himself in exile in Babylon, but a man of great integrity. You see this in the story of Ruth, who is not an Israelite, actually, but she is someone who has great integrity. She keeps to the commitment that she made to her mother-in-law, even when circumstances might excuse her from doing it. Uh, we see this in the story of Job, who suffers greatly through the story of the Old Testament, but, but nonetheless remains committed to the Lord. He will not charge him with wrongdoing, we're told. And of course, in the New Testament, it is Jesus, who though he emerges from this messy family, so to speak, stands aside as a man of great integrity, great integrity. And the Bible, actually, what it's saying, in spite of this, this family history of messy people, is that God wants people who maintain their integrity in the face of great challenge. It's these kind of characters who the Bible keeps holding up as models to us, the kind of people that God wants to see in and amongst his family. God wants people who maintain integrity in the face of a great challenge. Well, the question, of course, is what does the Bible mean by this? There's, there's not one set word, but there, there are these descriptions of people throughout the Scriptures to describe integrity. And the psalmist in Psalm 26 articulates, I think, what integrity looks like in the Bible. He says, test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind, for I have always been mindful of your unfailing love and have lived in reliance on your faithfulness. You see, this, this is the example of a, of a life of integrity, and, and it's, a, it's a life that is both internally and externally coherent. What is unseen is reflected in what is seen. So he says, examine my heart and my mind, the things that others cannot see but the Lord can see. He says, that has an integrity to it, but it matches with the life that I have lived, in verse 3. A life lived in reliance of your faithfulness. And this is the picture of the Bible, of integrity. It's a person who, what you can see on the outside, is a reflection of what's true on the inside. Of course, this is what Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for in the New Testament, because they don't live that integrity. There is something on the outside which might look religiously um, appropriate, but their hearts, he says, you're like whitewashed tombs. You know, the outside looks good, but the inside is rotten. So on one level, this is what integrity is in the Bible. Now, I think there's a lot of people who actually would just automatically agree with that, maybe because part of that teaching of the Scriptures still has seeped through into our culture, but what they would describe it as is authenticity in our, in our time. That's how we're being, you're being authentic. Who you are on the inside is who you are on the outside. You don't pretend to be one person, but actually you are someone else internally. No, your, your inside is reflected on your outside. And to a certain extent, we agree. But I, I think even as I say that, perhaps you have, a, you have a sense of uneasiness to think that the Bible automatically affirms authenticity. That's not necessarily biblical integrity. 
It might be culturally speaking uh, integrity, to, to be an authentic person, but the Bible is actually speaking about integrity at a, at a much more nuanced level. And when we return back to the story of Joseph, we actually see in his example what it really means to have integrity in the eyes of God. When you think about Joseph's story, a couple of things emerge. Now, if you're taking notes, you'll see that on the, ins- uh, I think it's like page three or something in your booklets. Yep, page three, you'll see the outline for today. And I've written down that there's three keys to integrity or three characteristics, or three marks of what you would describe as biblical integrity when you look at the life of Joseph. The first is that he views everything in light of God. And so he says to Potiphar's wife, my master has withheld nothing from me except you. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against him? Well, actually, he doesn't say that, does he? You'd expect him to say that. You'd expect him to say, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against him? But he doesn't. He says sin against God. Because for, for Joseph, his whole life is always before the Lord. Every decision he makes is ultimately a decision that involves God. And as much as, yes, it would be a sin against Potiphar, it would be a wicked thing against Potiphar, it is even more so a wicked thing against God. It's so much so more wicked against God that that kind of overwhelms and outshines out, out the wickedness of, the, of, of his act against Potiphar. This is not unusual. You might remember or you might think forward to Psalm 51 where David prays a very similar prayer of confession where he says, he confesses after having murdered or overseen the murder of Uriah and then slept with his wife Bathsheba, actually did it in the opposite way. His prayer of confession is primarily a prayer of confession of sin against God. See, biblical integrity comes from a very clear sense that we stand before the Lord. We understand ourselves as before God himself primarily. Secondly, uh, Joseph's experience with Potiphar's wife is not a one-off conversation, we're told, but a repeated experience of temptation. She comes and speaks to Joseph day after day. Now, remember, it's not like he can just change jobs here. He can't say, I'm going to your competitor He's a slave, fundamentally, even though he has great uh, responsibility, he's bound to be in this role. And day after day, um, Potiphar's wife comes to him, seeking to seduce him, and yet he refuses to go to bed with her or even be with her. There's a great discipline to what Joseph executes here, a great discipline. Uh, You know, we kind of think of this story because we've only read two chapters of it, right? But even up to now, we've gone through a number of years in Joseph's life, maybe six or seven years he's been living like this. So day after day is more than likely more than just like a fortnight of this kind of thing. This is repeated, elongated experience where Joseph must continue to remain disciplined, disciplined in the task, disciplined in the life, Discipline in the context that God has brought him to. Uh, one of the commentators, John Walton, tells this great story of a missionary who lived and worked in Africa for, um, for a very long time with a tribe, introduced um, the gospel to them, served them in many ways. Finally, as she was leaving, the tribe gathered to thank her. 
and they gave her a series of gifts. And she says how she gave one, one of the gifts she was given was a fairly unremarkable shell. Uh, but then she realised the shell had come from an area that was about a several weeks' journey away from where they were. In other words, and of course these people don't have vehicles, so they would have had to walk for several weeks to get this journey, this shell, and, and then return. And she asked the man about it, and he said, the gift is in the journey. The gift is in the journey, see? For him, what made it valuable is the fact that he was willing to travel such a great distance to go and get this and bring it back. And the Christian life is like that. See, God graciously accepts not just the end product of your life, but the journey of discipline that you go through as a Christian. And integrity emerges out of this repeated decision to choose God. One, one author said uh, that it is saying yes to the Lord moment by moment. That is the life of integrity as a Christian. Not a one-off moment. I mean, we live in a culture which is integrity is just kind of chasing um, in the spur of living in the, in the moment, isn't it? It's chasing after whatever that dream or desire is. And yet the Bible is casting a very different picture The person of integrity is someone who is single-mindedly focused on what God wants in a repeated, ongoing, steadfast way. You know, there is nothing more confirming about someone's faith uh, than to stand at their deathbed and reflect on a life lived in service to God. We're always excited when we hear about someone who makes a profession of faith and prays a prayer, and those are great things, but there is something deeper and more, more sincere about a life lived like that. It's the mark of true faith. It's the mark of a, a life of integrity, biblical integrity. But thirdly, uh, it's, not just, it's not just discipline, but it's a genuine, urgent avoidance of sin. So here's what happens... When finally Potiphar's wife kind of uh, gets, uh, gets Joseph alone, it's one of those days when no one else is in their house, and she grabs his coat, and we're told he left his coat in her hand and ran out. That's fled out of the house. Uh, there's a real urgency to this. He's, a, he's almost afraid of the, of the possibility here. And so he flees from the possibility of sin. You know, Paul, in his letter, 1 Corinthians 6, calls, calls Christians to flee from sexual immorality. He's using that word deliberately because he's trying to remind them of this great iconic story in their past of how Joseph fled from the temptation of Potiphar's wife in that moment. And so biblical integrity comes when we flee from sin, when we take it so seriously, we have such an urgency to get away from it, to put distance between us and that opportunity. Now, we we again live in a world which takes sin lightly, but the Bible doesn't, and a person of integrity doesn't take it lightly, and they're willing to cast off every opportunity uh, that, that otherwise might be afforded to avoid it. And there are, of course, many sins that we are to flee from. But I don't think it's just an accident that this one is a sin of sexual immorality. As we turn to the New Testament, the New Testament writers repeatedly warn uh, Christians and particularly leaders of God's church to flee from sexual immorality. 
because it's the thing that can will just ruin your life. Paul says it's more than just a physical act. There is a deep spiritual component to it. And so as much as we want to kind of we want to talk about all kinds of sin that we should flee from, the Bible says well integrity involves a very clear clear willingness to flee from anything that might lead us down the path of sexual immorality. You know, if we were a congregation filled with university students, which was my previous congregation, I, I would, I mean, this, this would be the hot-button issue. It'd also be the most controversial thing I would preach on, to tell people to, to kind of regulate their, their sex life along the lines of the Bible. But that's exactly what it looks like to have biblical integrity. Now, what you can see is that we started by saying, oh, biblical integrity is to have authenticity, and that kind of sounded pretty acceptable, really, in the context of of our culture. But we see it's far more than that, and it's actually very difficult. And the story of Joseph is a story of one for whom choosing to have integrity is costly. That's why we often find it difficult See, Joseph, you remember, he has that dream last week that we heard of. He's promised that all these people will bow down to him. He'll be in a place of authority. In other words, God is going to prosper this. And there would have been moments as he's in Potiphar's house where he would have had a sense, oh, it's all coming true. God is doing exactly what he said. And it would have been so tempting for him, wouldn't it, to to shift his eyes from what God has called him to and his commands and move his eyes to the vision of success that had also been promised to him, to to write off um, the the wickedness of sleeping with Potiphar's wife because he had his eyes fixed on success. But therein is the challenge of it. This is why we find it so difficult at times, actually, because we, we, we are captured by our own success. And having a life of biblical integrity will cost us. It will cost us. It's not just Joseph. This is the story of the books, the wisdom books, the wisdom literature. Here's one example from Psalms. Many other afflictions of the righteous. It costs, you see, this is the story of Joseph. It's the story of the Bible. And I've got to be upfront with you. It's the story of your life as a Christian. If you're going to have integrity, it costs you to live with biblical integrity. It costs you. It's not going to be easy. It cost Jesus. It cost Job. It cost Daniel. It cost Ruth. It costs each and every single individual in the scriptures who chooses to live with integrity. It costs you. So the question is how can Joseph do it? Because Joseph is not Jesus, of course. Jesus has a sinless. Uh, he, he has a sinless nature. He is God. Maybe you could excuse him. You could say, well, he has things to draw on. Which, But actually, Joseph teaches us something about how you actually take the step down this path. And through this story, there's just this common refrain. It, it appears at the start. It appears at the end again. Here's what it says. It says, the Lord was with Joseph. It's there, it's there in verse 2, it's there in verse 3, and then again at the end when he goes into the jail, it's there with him again in verse 21 and verse 23. And in Moses' mind, this is the thing that sustains Joseph. 
This is the thing that allows him to keep living the way that God has called him to live, to live with integrity. God was with him. God is with him. With, in the sense, he's beside him. That's what that kind of language means in Hebrew. Right? Not just that you know, he's kind of cheering for him from far. No, he, there is a sense in which he's kind of, he's, he's, he's located near him, beside him, amongst him. He's in his very experience. The Lord is with him. Actually, in verse 21, Moses unpacks what it means for the Lord to be with Joseph. He says, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favour in the eyes of the prison warden. Now, on one level, to be with him is to kind of move things around so that the prison warden looks at him with favour. In a sense, that's what it is to be with him. But to show him kindness, it's a really interesting phrase, actually, because it's the same, it's a similar word to when Moses kind of stretches out his arm. In other words, God stretches out his kindness to Joseph. In the midst of his dark cell, God stretches out his hand to Joseph, a hand of kindness and grace to Joseph. See, God is not distant to Joseph, but he stretches out his hand to him. In fact, in this story, Joseph has been regularly handed over to people. Again, we miss this when they translate it from the Hebrew to the English, but he's handed from the Ishmaelites to Potiphar, and then from Potiphar to the captain of the the prison guard. He's handed over. But the truth, Moses says, is that he's never outside of God's hand. Because God has stretched out his hand to him. God is with him. Now what's what's interesting is that comfort runs through the Bible and reaches its crescendo in the Lord Jesus. Here's what Matthew says in his gospel. He quotes Isaiah, says the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they'll call him Emmanuel. This is his prophecy, this is uh, at the start of Jesus' birth. But then see what Matthew says, he kind of, he explains it to us. He says, which means God with us. God with us. God stretching out his hand to us. Stretching out his kindness to us. And then in Matthew 28, that verse that Nikita used for spotlight, Jesus, as he sends the disciples out into the world, out to do what's difficult, which requires an integrity of voice and life in a world that will reject it, He says, I'm with you. I've stretched out my hand. I will be with you. Now, have you ever ever crossed a road with a child? Maybe it's your own child. It's a a grandchild, a niece or a nephew. They come to the road and the big truck rolls past and you're standing there and you just feel their little hand reach up into yours, right? And you wrap your hand around theirs And it's almost like all of your confidence, all of your assurance, all of your insight and understanding transfers from you to them. It gives them confidence in this moment. You know, someone comes to talk to them and they feel anxious, they just hold your hand. Because they understand that as you stretch out your hand of kindness to them, Everything that's yours is at their behest. Suddenly, you are there for them. You are their comfort. You are their confidence. You are their security. You might even be their voice for them in that moment. 
And so when God stretches out his hand to you, and when you are willing to take his hand, everything that is his is yours. All of his confidence, assurance, his very voice is yours. Who is God? Well, the gospel of Jesus ultimately shows us who God is. Who is this person who stretches out his hand? He, he is compassionate. God is compassionate. God is merciful to sinners. God brings life to your sinful body. And God judges justly and rightly. Now, that, if that is God, and if you are willing to take his hand, then you get sustenance when you're weary. You get mercy when you fail. You get life when you're without. And you get vindication for your sufferings. Because God has stretched out his hand to you. And to live with biblical integrity is your way of putting your hand in his and saying, Heavenly Father, be with me. Be with me. Joseph is, Joseph is such a great, challenging model for us. But ultimately, the one who assures us and walks with us is the Lord himself, just like he walked with Joseph. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great comfort, the great comfort we see you giving Joseph and which is now ours, available to us as well in the Lord Jesus. This comfort that you have stretched out your kindness to us and whether we sit in a dark place or at this very moment feel completely at ease, we know that you are willing to hold us in your hands. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would grant us the humility and the willingness to take hold of you. In Jesus' name, amen.